0: really people didn't know they really didn't know at all they didn't even know she was sick a little bit
1: hello everyone and welcome to the inaugural episode of town hall a black queer podcast the podcast where we journeyed
2: through a theme by sharing stories music poetry and art of varying depth and hilarity I am your host, Bob the Drag Queen. And I'm your host, Peppermint, and today's episode is all about
1: secrets. <laughs> mm, juicy, juicy secrets. Salacious secrets. Secrets. Salivating secret. F- 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 I, can't,
2: secret. I can't think of another Victoria's
1: S-word. Victoria's secret. Victor's secret. No, not Victoria's secret. secret. <laughs> Vivacious's secret. <laughs> Okay, so Pep, um, do you, have you, do you, I mean, we all have sex secrets,
2: right? I guess mine would be more in the category of shame, but
1: yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Well, I mean, don't secrets and shame kind of not? They're not always hand in hand, but it's kind of like love of and marriage. <laughs> yes, like they kind of go like a horse and carriage. If
2: you wanna, if you wanna embarrass somebody, humiliate somebody,
1: or shut somebody the hell up, you just bring up their sex life, right? Yeah, yeah, because it's supposed to be something you do like behind closed door, literally. Yeah, not well, not always. Sometimes it is out in open, and we're not we're not here to kink shame. Pep and I are not here, <laughs> not here to kink shame Anyway. No kink shaming unless I your am, kink I'm is specifically kink shaming. Here, here to kink free. shame.
2: No more kinks. <laughs> we're it's <we're laughs> a new it's a new day.
1: 2023, <laughs> kink free. Uh, so we 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 have some our, our first secret. We're gonna we're gonna dive right into the to, to the deep world of sex and salaciousness, mm, honey. Mm. And 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 shame. And we'll we'll leave it this at
2: that. This is the best way to get y'all started on uh, our podcast, honey. Just dive right into the sex. But this might not be the kind of sex that you um were
1: envisioning. <laughs> it's not so vanilla, I guess. Pep, uh, I, I mean, this was a forward question. But do you do you consider your sex to be vanilla? Are you are you a vanilla girl, <laughs> darling? Mine is butter pecan.
2: <laughs> I actually am a quite a vanilla kind of gal, and that's probably not a surprise mm-hmm. for people. But I, yeah, no, mine no. is like an an um a sort of a, an exotic vanilla, if you will, French vanilla. Yeah, you know. Like, like that that Trader Trader Joe's vanilla. No, <laughs> definitely not mass marketed. Corp. Yes, corporate vanilla. Yes, corporate <laughs> vanilla. Quite, quite, quite. I quite think that's the answer. <laughs> so. Okay, so we, we
1: we have a story about some sex that is that is not vanilla. In fact, you know, I mean, you, you might call this this sex chocolate. Ooh, no. So, uh, where's my cop? I, I don't want to bear the lead. <laughs> I don't want to bear the lead. So I'll, I'm going to let you all go ahead and just listen to it. <laughs> listen to the secret.
2: Nasty.
3: Hi, Bob. Hi, Peppermint. Here's my embarrassing story. I met this guy. He was really cool. Played in a band. Played bass. Wore a leather jacket. He was like the Fonz of the 2010s. <laughs> so we had mutual friends in common. And so whenever I saw him, we always ended up talking um, about music and stuff like that. So we got along really well. Um, so one night we were at the bar and it ended up just being the two of us talking for a while. We noticed that there was literally nobody else around us um except for the bartender so we cashed out decided to go to a 24-hour diner and get some breakfast because it was like two in the morning by now I had a waffle I had bacon I had sausage (laughs) I had a whole whole plate uh you can call it a grand slam if you want and We continued to talk and had a good time and then went back to his place. So we had a beer and we started doing stuff, making out over here and then making out over there and clothes are off and everything else. Next thing you know, I'm on all fours. He's behind me and he sticks a finger in my butt. (laughs) And I was like, oh, we're doing, we're doing this. Oh, okay. Um, I was not prepared, but oh, that's nice. Okay. So then he put two fingers in and then my body rebelled because keep in mind, I had just had breakfast and I farted in his face because I am face down, ass up on this man's bed. And my ass is pointed directly at his face. So he like paused and i paused and i went i'm really sorry about that and then i started moving again thinking like all right if i move then he'll move and we'll get back at it and that's what happened we both finished <laughs> had a good time i think he dropped me off to my car the next morning was really sweet gave me a kiss goodbye And um, never talk to him again. (laughs) Like I said, we have mutual friends in common. So I'd see him occasionally. Um, My old town where I used to live, he still lives there, I think, was a qualifier for Iron Man. So friends of mine had a corner house and they would throw a big party and we'd cheer on the Iron Man and Iron Women. And so I saw him there like a year or so after with his wife, who he was not married at the time. They had just gotten married and had a baby. And so that was one of the last times I saw him. Cut to about three years after that, my hairstylist moved salons. And so I started going to her new salon where I met the owner. Owner was super nice. She friended me on Facebook and didn't see very many posts from her. And she's not, you know, she probably friended quite a few people that came to her salon just for numbers and support and all that um it was his wife and she didn't know who I was because why the fuck would he tell her and I never said anything <laughs> but I've since moved away and I deleted her because I'm like this is too weird and I hope she never finds out but anyway don't eat breakfast before people stick fingers in your butt and I have learned since to not be a messy bottom
1: This past fall, when me and Monet were on tour uh, for Sibling Rivalry, um, we got to tour the House of Juicy Couture, who won season three of Legendary. Really, really amazing, amazing cast. Um, And one of the cast members is uh, this young girl named Brooklyn. Brooklyn is, first of all, she's 19 years old. It was, I kept thinking to myself, like, imagine, like, being on tour at 19, like, I (laughs) like i could i could even imagine oh,
2: i can't even take it at 40 something and i actually was there at the show and saw you all and saw them perform I'm with y'all
1: yeah now if any of you were, were on that tour you saw brooklyn was um she's uh really uh tall and slim and she had the long long hair um kind of like a brown mm-hmm. skin like a light brown skin um, young lady and um when well, we were hanging out on the bus and getting ready backstage we i'm obviously getting to know the house of just couture and uh, the more and more broken talk, I kept being like, oh, my God, your life was uh, there was a lot of secrets in your life. And it's weird because she was kind of like, oh, and it never occurred to me. <laughs> like, like, she was like, oh, I didn't realize and I was like, yeah, girl, that's a lot of like her whole life was a secret. Like it was like a big amalgamation of secrets, a bunch of secret threads weaving together to make a big secret tapestry. You know what I mean? I, you mean like a secret casserole? Yeah, but yeah, but seek some some secret sauce, <laughs> some secret pasta, some secret mm. green beans. <laughs> so I, I am asked her to, in the mood for this. <laughs> so I asked her to, uh, to come on the uh, the podcast and uh, share her story, and I'm I'm I'm, oh. I'm excited for you all to hear it. I'm excited to have some. All right, here we go
5: my name is brooklyn my pronouns are she her they them i'm 19 years old and i am a dancer slash model slash everything you know i didn't really have the traditional sad sob story lgbtq story we never ever spoke about it ever nobody like ever asked me like if i was gay or like you know if i liked boys it was just You want to be Nicki Minaj for Halloween? Be Nicki Minaj for Halloween. You want to jump double dutch? Jump double dutch, you know? I got to be a kid, so that was really, really fun. But as I got older, you know, started seeing things. I wasn't ever, like, fully out, but I wasn't, like, ever fully, like, in the closet either. I was just me, you know? I just lived my life. And, you know, I never acted on it, you know? until I got to probably like high school, you know, I started experimenting with different things. So when I first got to high school, everybody had already knew each other and I was like the new kid on the block. Um, This boy, he had asked me, he was like, are you gay? And I was just like, wow, like this is the first time like anybody's like ever like really like asked me, asked me like, and I'm like older and I'm not like, you know, afraid to say like, yeah, I'm gay. So I'm like, yeah, I'm gay, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So everybody's just having a right conversation. I get to school the next day. The whole school knew that I was gay, like the whole school. And I was like, wow, damn, like less than 24 hours. Like, wow. But everyone like, you know, was still pretty cool. No one really was like acting like strange toward me. However, though, I am no longer gay. I am now, like, transgender. And that nobody, like, really knows. Like, that I'm keeping a secret. I'm keeping it, like, to myself. Because, um, you know, it's something very sacred to me. My mom knows. My mom is definitely accepting. Um, It took her a while to, like, you know, grasp it. But, you know, she's definitely accepting. Um, My siblings are very open and accepting. I have a gay brother and a lesbian sister, so fit right into the, you know, spectrum. So that's really fun. My dad isn't really accepting, so I don't really, like, talk to my dad anymore. We're not really, like, close. When it comes to, like, my immediate family, that's pretty much it. Everybody's really accepting except for him. So before I was dancing, I was, like, jumping double dutch. So I was, like, really good at double dutch, like, I was the best, like, in my neighborhood, like, nobody could beat me. Like, it was really, like, really, it was really great for me. That was my first passion. Um, I ended up joining the double dutch team. My dad came back around, and he, I guess, didn't want me, like, jumping double dutch or doing anything feminine, so I actually had to stop jumping double Um, My mom actually made up a lie and told me that—well, not made up a lie, because I kind of was doing bad in school, but, you know— I guess that was her reasoning for, like, pulling me out instead of, like, you know, him and actually, like, letting me know it was him. So after I stopped jumping double dutch, I was about 12-ish, 13, and I was just, like, really unhappy with, life at that age. Like, I was, like, really bad. I was, like, throwing temper tantrums. And like all of this stuff. And so fast forward to high school, I joined a dance team because they were practicing in my high school and it really intrigued me what they were doing. And so I told my mom, my mom wasn't really like with it at first, but then like I was like ignoring her and I just kept going to rehearsal and I just kept getting like grounded and but like, you know, it was like a never ending cycle, like grounding and rehearsal like I said, like my parents were like really accepting. Like my mom was really accepting, my godmother was really accepting. I always got to do everything I wanted to do. But when my dad came back around, he didn't want me doing like anything feminine. And so my mom started like just taking away everything because of him. So I had found Voguing through the little dance company. And I went to the dance instructor. I was like, what is that? And he was like, "That's Vogan." I was like, "That's Vogan." He was like, "Yeah." I was like, "I don't want to do anything else. I just want to do that." He was like, "You being dead ass." I was like, "I'm dead serious. I don't want to do anything else. I don't want to do no more hip hop. I don't want to do no more contemporary. I want to do that. That is what I want to do." So, I literally didn't do anything other than Vogue. Like, I was only just there, just to Vogue. I got really good at Vogan, so. I never really spoke to my dad about like these type of things because like I was like always like really hyper feminine and he was like really hyper masculine. And so it was like I never really spoke to him. I spoke to my mom though. I told my mom that um I was interested in voguing and you know, I wanted to join the house and all of these things. And my mom had knew about ballroom previously because of my sister and my brother. They were in ballroom before. But I guess like the things that like they told my mom about ballroom, she had like this like perception of ballroom that was like bad and she didn't want me like anywhere near ballroom. And so she was like, you're not going to any balls. You're not going to be in ballroom and blah, blah, blah. You're going to stop voguing. I was like, I'm not going to stop voguing. Like, I already stopped jumping double dutch. Like, I'm not going to stop doing everything I like to do. It was actually one day I had asked my mom if I could go outside. My mom was also really strict. Like, I got got to do everything I wanted to do, but she was really strict. I had to be in the house at, I think it was either 8.30 or 9 p.m. It was in the summer. And there was a ball. The ball didn't start until 9 p.m. And it was like a little, like, I guess, like little, like fun day. Like it was like a bouncy house and all of this stuff before the ball. So I'm at the little fun thing or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it was getting later and later. It's like 730. Then it's like eight. Then it's 830. My mom texts me at 830. She was like, okay, start making your way home. And I didn't respond. And then she called me at nine. And by this time, the ball is going on. So, like, I don't hear my phone ringing. I'm just, like, fascinated with, like, what's going on with the ball. And she's calling my phone down. Like, I have probably, like, 10 to 15 minutes' calls. And I got home then. I actually ended up walking the ball. I didn't win. But I had a clip of mine go viral. And so that put me on, like, the ballroom map. I think, like, just knowing that I wasn't supposed to be there made me, like want to be in the moment there even more Um, I remember one of my battles the battles that actually went viral Um, I was like catwalking and my elements were really bad this was my first ball everything was really horrible Um, I was like catwalking and then I had did like this little um, break dance move was like jumping back onto my hands and jumping back onto my feet and I did that and the whole ball was like screaming everybody's like
0: yeah I was
5: like, ah when I did and like, I don't know. Um after that went viral, I literally got like text messages on Facebook from like every house asking me to join their house. And I didn't want to join any house other than Juicy because I had previously heard of Juicy through my dance instructor a lot of his friends were Juicy's and so I was like I don't want to be anything else other than Juicy so Juicy had reached out but I didn't know Juicy had reached out like I was just seeing a bunch of text messages I was just ignoring everybody and so I went back to my dance instructor I was like who are these people like who are they and then he was like that's Quanah that's mother Juicy that's Quanah text her back so I'm like, she's a Juicy? He's like, yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm going to write her back right now. So I wrote back Mother Juicy and she invited me to a rehearsal and I became a Juicy. Um, So that was really, really fun. I was actually grounded for like the rest of the summer because of that, that ball. So I actually didn't end up becoming a Juicy until like maybe like Septemberish October. And I was just like, after that, I was just like, Sneaking out, going to balls, going to practices, and blah, blah, blah. Getting grounded, getting in trouble, getting my butt whooped because I was doing things I wasn't supposed to be doing. Eventually, my mom kind of got over it. I think she kind of got over it when I was like 15, almost 16. Um, She kind of got over it. She stopped caring. She realized that I was just going to keep doing what I wanted to do. Like, you know, just something I wanted to do. Can't stop him. When I turned 15, a little a little while after I turned 15, my mom, my dad decided to move to Oklahoma. Prior to them moving to Oklahoma, we lived in Brooklyn, New York. So my mom is like, oh, we're moving to Oklahoma. I'm like, I'm not moving with you to Oklahoma. I'm not going there. She's like, why not? I'm like, because I just found something that I like to do. I'm not gonna let you take this from me again. Like I'm not doing that. So she's like, Oh, well, you don't have a choice. You don't have a choice. I'm your mother. You're not gonna tell me what you're doing or what you're not doing, and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, all right, we'll see. And we had got into it really bad about um about that. And then the time came where they finally like up and left to go to Oklahoma. And so what they did was they were really slick about it. Let me tell you what they did. They were really slick. They went to Oklahoma by themselves and they left me and my sister. My sister now is, I think, 21 or 22. Um, at the time I was 15, I think she was 17. 17 or 18, one of the two. They left us here in New York. They had bought us plane tickets. She's, my mom called. She's like, Oh, I want you to come visit and blah, blah, blah. She bought fucking one-way tickets to Oklahoma and didn't buy a ticket back. But I didn't know this. I didn't know this until probably like three or four days after being there. So I get there. I'm like, oh, the house is nice. Whatever. You know, it's nice here. I went to go to the Walmart because it was like a Walmart kind of like around the corner. And on my way back, I was walking back and I literally stood in the middle of the street, did a full 360 and saw nothing, like literally saw nothing. So it was like going from like the city, being in the city, big buildings, people walking, all of these different sounds and smells to like nothing. And then it was, like, really cold, too. It was really cold at the time. I'm, like, I'm not staying here. Like, I would never live here. I don't know what she was thinking. So I get back in the house. And, you know, that's just it. Then it's the next day. Next day goes by. Then it's, like, probably, like, our third day being there. I'm, like, okay. When's, like, you know, when are we going home? So she's ignoring me. She, like, is, like, ignoring everything I'm saying. So now it's the fourth day we're there. She finally answers me back. I'm like, okay, Ma, when are we going home? She's like, you're not going home. I'm like, I'm not going home. She's like, no, you got a one-way ticket here. I was like, you for real? She was like, I'm dead serious. I was like, oh, watch this. And then she was like, watch this. I was like, yeah. She was like, what you going to do? I was like, I'm going home. She was like, this is your home. I was like, I live in New York. I live in Brooklyn, New York. She was like, okay, we'll see. So she had set it up, set up Oklahoma in a way where my sister had already had a job. I think my sister had already knew the plan, but my sister wasn't as rebellious as I am. So I think my sister already knew the plan because she had already had a job out there. So it was a Thursday. I will never forget. It was a Thursday. My mom left for work first, and then my sister left for work. And I called my oldest sister. She's probably at the time, I think, 28. She lives in Williamsburg, New York. So she didn't live with us while we were here in New York. So I call her, I'm like, Denesia, I don't want to stay here, I want to go home. This is not my home, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, can you buy me a plane ticket home? Because at this time I have no money, I'm 15 years old. I think I probably only had like $100 in my name, but that was cash, I didn't have no bank cards or nothing to buy a plane ticket. So she literally bought me a ticket, booked my Uber um to the airport and my um, Uber back home from the airport in New York. The flight was about two hours, two hours, three hours. And when I got home, my mom had called me and her exact words were, yo, you really left. And I was like, yeah, I told you I wasn't staying there. You thought I was playing, I wasn't playing. And she was like, yo, you really left. Like, she's just saying it over and over. She's like, yo, you really left. I can't believe you really left. I was like, yeah. And I could, like, hear her, like, like start crying in her voice. So I'm like, I'm going to call you later. Click. And I hung up the phone on her. And then she called me back the next day. And she was just, like, bawling, crying. She was like, I can't believe you really left. Like, you really don't want to be here. Blah, 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 blah. Blah, blah, blah. I can't stop you. I love you so much. And that was just, like, a whole thing. And so... She actually tried to get me to stay out there again. She did the same thing again. But at around this time, I was like, I think probably like 16 or 17. And I had my own money at this time. Like, you know, I was hustling, doing my thing, making my own money. So I had my own money. And I just bought my own plan to get home. When I seen like somebody vote for the first time, I was like so fascinated. Like, I was like, wow, like this is amazing. Like, And you know, it's like, people are hitting their backs on the floor like what is so amazing about people hitting their backs on the floor and like doing like crazy moves but i don't know it was just like so intriguing like the different things they were doing to get to that point on the floor it was just like so mind-boggling now like i can tell you like being deeper in ballroom you definitely meet a lot of different people and it kind of helps you understand different people and like what they come from and who they are. And it helps you mentor people that want to come to ballroom in the future and teaches you how to maneuver with them.
1: I am here with with respected comedian here in the Los Angeles County area.
4: <laughs> uh, you know, people do respect
1: me. I don't know why, I didn't tell them to. <laughs> I've chosen respect. So I, I, I. You said you okay. So I called you in and asked you if you had a secret, and you told me that you, yes, that you have one. How long, how long have it, you kept the secret? Well, it's
4: I. I kept the secret, but I also forgot because it's it's happened like twenty five plus years ago, probably even thirty years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's <laughs> look, my brother to this day. Uh, I think to this day, I haven't talked to him about it in a while. Uh, he believes that in the middle of the night, a ghost. Threw something like a basketball at him and he he tells the story on occasion but it truly was me waking up in the middle of the night and hitting him with something I can't remember if it if was a basketball or not but it was clearly something that made it feel because it's been so long but yeah he still doesn't know that I was the one that hit him and ran across the room and pretended to be asleep
1: when was the last time you your you heard your brother tell the story
4: oh I feel like it was like probably like a decade plus ago
1: so in adulthood yes he was like a a ghost Fully <laughs> threw an object at me.
4: Yes, and it woke me up, and nobody else was there. I was there. We shared a room.
1: He should have assumed I was the one that did that. And why didn't you come forward and say, "Hey, it was me. I, I did it."
4: Why? It's so much better now. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I hope he never hears this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Well, uh, your secret is safe with us. Thank you for telling your secret. Thank you.
4: <laughs>
2: Okay, so, I mean, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Drag race. We have Mm -hmm. not... We've gone a full... Nearly an hour and haven't even mentioned... (laughs) Not even once. Not even once. We haven't uttered the words drag race. And we don't want the lightning from the drag gods to strike us so we have to mention it it's in our life contract right um and everybody who knows us obviously knows and probably is a fan of drag race as we are uh and drag race is a juggernaut a rating juggernaut for reality yeah. tv very uh, it's emmy award nominated and winning uh and now it's franchised all over the world but a lot of people fall in love with the queens on the show and the, the drag entertainers on the show, but uh, they don't really know much about the people behind the scenes and who create the show. There are directors and producers and writers and, uh, camera people, obviously my daughter, Wintergreen, uh, Sarge. (laughs) Uh, and so, uh, the, the tone of RuPaul's Drag Race filming a reality show like that, there's a lot of sort of for lack of a better word secrecy behind the scenes where the performers who are very energetic and very outgoing are urged to sort of keep that under wraps for a, lo- a for a while until they get on camera so when they're at lunch or when they're when they're just relaxing or when they're just in their hotel room to really sort of keep those bottle those feelings sort of bottled up until they're in their interview and in their confessional or on camera and the people who are in charge of sort of uncorking that emotional bottle and allowing it to beautifully play out for people to see on camera, uh, the people who hold that position uh, and that job title are uh, called story producers, yeah. and they are they are the the people who really have the closest relationship with the drag entertainers uh, and sort of are in charge of pulling this story out of us and allowing us to become you know, for our personality to come out on camera.
1: They're who you talk to the most while you're there. You talk to them more than yeah. anyone while you're there. Um, and there are two particular story producers uh, who have made a huge impact on a lot of the queens in the show, me particularly, mm. um, and their names are um, uh, Jacqueline Wilson. And um, we call her Mish, but her name is uh, Michelle Mills. Now, um, so was, was Jacqueline your story producer? She sure was. She was my story producer as well. And um Jacqueline... We didn't get
2: along very well until But oh, did you not? <laughs> until after the filming. I snapped on her one time. i oh, did I'll tell you about that later?
1: Me and Jacqueline, me and Jacqueline got along really well. She I loved her so much. And I really I really I really had so much trust in her. And um I did not trust her. <laughs> and Jacqueline's best friend, her name is uh Mish, uh, who still works on the show to this day. And um, we, we asked Mish if she would uh, come and um, talk about uh, keeping someone else's secret. Michelle Mills was interviewed by our uh, wonderful producer, Charlene Westbrook. So you'll hear a voice in there. And that is Miss that Westbrook.
0: Hi, I'm Michelle Mills. I'm a reality TV producer currently on RuPaul's Drag Race, where I've worked for about 11 years. I've met a lot of very interesting people, both in front and behind the camera. The person who was the co-executive producer with me for most of the time that I've worked on Drag Race is Jacqueline Wilson. She is actually the person who hired me, but she really was super devoted to the job and super devoted to the show. And I'm kind of the same way, so we did ultimately end up clicking really well. And became great, great friends, both, you know, at work and outside of work as well. Jacqueline had a very powerful presence and energy. You would not, not notice her when she walked into the room. Her presence came in with her at all times. She was known for her style. Her hair was always done up in like braids or twists or something, but always very like noticeable, very artistic And the clothing was very New York style. I mean, I don't know how to describe it. She was really, really beautiful. She basically like, you know, just always looked like she was, you know, on a runway. Everybody commented on her fashion and she was very proud of it. She was that bitch. So I've worked at Drag Race almost 12 years now. And I worked with Jacqueline for about 10 years of that until she passed away. We basically did the same job and kind of split the work between us. So our job entails, uh, well, a lot of things, but a large part of it is post-production. And so we spend basically the bulk of the year doing that. It's a very specific kind of job where a lot of what we talked about had to do with like all different kinds of topics that maybe are not typical in 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 a workplace. So it was, you know, how do we want to represent things that have to do with queer culture, with different racial issues, ethnicities, gender issues, storytelling, creative, like all kinds of things. I think by the end of the first season, I started to feel like we were work friendly. And then I guess it was the second season where slowly we started, you know, getting in deeper, having more conversations and we would go to the movies or go to a concert together or also, you know, or just talk on the phone if we were like having a rough day. And, uh, And then we also both loved learning from each other. As much as I felt like I knew, I loved learning from her. As a Black person, how do you feel about how the storyline is playing out or how we should play it? And the same thing that I would bring to her about Latina storylines or about uh, plus-size women storylines. Jacqueline often felt she had to be extra careful at work being a Black woman. And I, being Mexican, did not care about that. So I think, you know, or a little bit, but not, not so much. And I think we tapered each other. She kind of got me to mellow out a little bit at times when I should. And I got her to, you know, say, hey, there's two of us now. There's two voices. It's stronger this way. And maybe we can say something more. So we also kind of did that for each other. So Jacqueline passed away in 2019. And about a year and a half before that, she had been sick. There was a flu going around, and a bunch of people on our team all ended up having all these symptoms of the flu. Jacqueline had the flu at some point as well. However, she had this cough. She had this lingering cough that wouldn't go away. We had all had the cough with this flu. Her cough was noticeable, and it was a a pretty, you know, intense cough, but it still seemed like a bad flu cough. She went to the doctor a few times, actually, in the next couple of months, and they said various things from, you know, they gave her different kinds of antibiotics and then something else, and it was an infection. But the cough was just still not getting any better. And so once she was about three months in, she was very concerned. She went back to the doctor again. She insisted that they do a chest x-ray. They did, and lo and behold, they found a shadow on her lung. They sent her home with cough medicine. She emailed me to let me know she wasn't coming back to the office. And she was saying, oh, now I'm worried I have cancer, LOL. She did have to tell um, our supervisor that, you know, she had this medical issue going on. She didn't say how severe it was, but she had to go to, you know, doctor's appointments. She had to get a biopsy of her lung. So I went with her to that. At this point, she's not talking to anyone in her family and none of them live locally. Even when I went with her, she would make me stay in the lobby and not go in and hear what the doctor said. And then she would tell me what she wanted me to know from what the doctor said. So when she went in to get the results, I'm just sitting at the oncologist in the lobby, just you know, beside myself. And she was in there for a long time. And she came out in tears and told me she had cancer. She had lung cancer. Um, She didn't tell me what stage it was. At that point, I kind of was like, I'm just going to let her, for the most part, tell me what she wants to tell me. The thing about Jacqueline is that she's just very private when it comes to anything that, especially anything that would make her in any way seem weak. So even though we were super tight and she was letting me be a part of it, She was always keeping a little bit of information close to the vest. She was saying that the doctor had told her that if this was in the old days, you probably only have a year and a half to live. But now we have, you know, these medications and things. So, you know, you're young and you're strong. And so, you know, it's going to be a better outcome for you. I'm driving Jacqueline back from this visit and we're just like kind of, you know, we're going to, he needs she needs to get another test. They need to figure out what to do next. There's a whole Bunch of things that have to happen now that she has to wrap her head around. So we stopped to get coffee. Lo and behold, the oncologist was there getting coffee, and he came up and he was just, "I'm so sorry." He paid for our coffee. He was so, and I was like, "It's bad. Like it's really bad. It's really bad." And so I say, "Let me take you home, and I will tell the person we work with that you, you know, you had to go home for the rest of the day." And no, I'm I'm going to work. I'm not going home. She refused to go home. And she insisted on coming to work because if she was home, she would just be in her head and thinking about this and didn't want to do that. And she clearly wasn't going to be calling her family or anybody else. So she came to work. And this was kind of the demeanor that Jacqueline had throughout her journey with cancer. So at this point, I was sworn to secrecy. She was not telling anyone in her family. She didn't want anyone at work to know. And we had a long conversation about it that she should tell at least her mother. She also had a couple of other close friends here in town. And she just absolutely didn't want any of them to know at all. Like, I was absolutely sworn to secrecy. And that was, like, kind of a tough thing for me. And I had to adjust to the fact that this is her thing and I have to adjust to how she wants to handle it. It was really difficult. But at that point, I was also 100% convinced, as was she, that she was going to live for a really long time. That Again, what the doctor had said, she was, you know, young. Her whole life, she didn't smoke. She was like, she exercised daily. She went to meditation. She was like a very health conscious kind of person. So in my mind, she's got like the best chances between that and medication to have like a really long journey. I felt really bad about her family. I was like, you have to tell your mother at least. She eventually did. But I want to say it was like maybe two months later that she finally told her mother and she told one aunt because the aunt was a nurse. And she made them swear to secrecy not to tell anyone else. She's a big family. She didn't want her father to know because he's in Jamaica and has health problems. She just didn't want any, her, anyone to know. I think that Jacqueline felt like it wasn't real if she didn't tell people close to her that it wasn't real or that it was not really going to have a bad outcome. Knowing Jacqueline and feeling her vibe the way I do, I was like, she doesn't want to be asked about this constantly. She just to be reminded about it. She doesn't want to think about it. So I would kind of pick and choose when I was going to ask, like, you know, how are you feeling? Whatever. There starts to come a time when now more symptoms happen and things go to a different level. And then, you know, things change as it gets worse. I want to say this was maybe like two or three months in. She started having trouble walking and she had a limp. And so whenever she would get up to go to the bathroom, you know, I would see it. She said that it had spread to her bones. That's when she told me that it was, she had stage four cancer. So I don't know if she had had stage four from the beginning or it had jumped from three to four in that time. But it had definitely spread to her bones. And then she also had it in her brain. She was, started having headaches, like really bad headaches. And then it was in her brain. So then that's when she had to go do chemo just for the, the brain part of it. And I think that's when she jumped to a high level of fear, but also still trying to maintain. And then so she was going to lose her hair with the chemo. And she was like really worried about that because her hair had always been this sort of like big, you know, point of fashion and pride, a big part of her like identity. And then also what would people at work think? And so we had all these conversations like, girl, we work on a drag queen show. You know all the wigs that they have. Like, they're all these ones that look very real with the laces. And there are a lot of places that specialize in, like, you know, black hairstyles. And so she got very excited. So she went online and she found these wigs and she did the whole thing. And nobody noticed. She nobody noticed because she always had these crazy hairdos. And yeah, she played it off. So she, you know, she went and did all this. I went with her the first time that she had uh, her chemo. But after that, she wanted to go alone. She's very, just doesn't want to talk about it. Like, I want someone here with me. You know, I think that the the between the lines is I'm scared and I want someone with me, but I don't want to talk about it. I think one of the reasons why she didn't tell some of her other friends is because she, she didn't want them like crying and weeping and like trying to baby her and like, you know, or everyone sending their, you know, cure for cancer that they saw online or the herbal drink that they should, you know, that they heard she should drink or whatever it was. She didn't want all that. She said, look. Once I pass, you can tell anyone you want, which is why we're having this conversation today. But she said, until then, you can't tell anyone. I did end up telling one of my friends who doesn't know Jacqueline. It's not part of work because I just needed somebody that I could then talk to be, from with my stress. So the one thing that I did, and I don't think that technically was against the rules because even though she don't want me to tell anyone, she really don't want anyone in her world to know. And so, but even with my friend, I said, you can't tell anyone else, but I just need someone that I can cry to or vent to because I can't have these emotions in front of her. After this chemo thing happened, she just basically kind of kept getting worse. She took medication and then it was working, but it wasn't. And then she would take a different medication and then that was no longer working. And then she would do clinical trials. And so basically there were all these different things and it was always this ray of hope. Oh, this is the one that's going to be, you know, better. And there are people, you hear these stories that there are people who then have like, you know, a much longer, um, a much longer experience. Jacqueline only lasted a year and a half. The minimum amount that the doctor said was the worst case scenario is how long she survived. So our next season that we had to film came when Jacqueline was doing pretty poorly. I kind of begged her not to come and film. I said, we we can get someone else. You can then come back in for post-production afterwards where it's easier. She just absolutely would not. That last season that we filmed together, it was just like the worst. It was like the worst thing. She was so bad. I don't know how everyone didn't see it. She was so bad. You know, we started out and it was, it was kind of okay, but she just wasn't eating at all. The amount, the amount she deteriorated just in those seven weeks was horrific. She had a hard time walking. So most of the time I would say, you just sit at anything that requires leaving the trailer. I will do it. She would just really have a tough face. And the minute everything was, everyone was gone, she would like start crying because she was in so much pain. But she wouldn't stop working. She just refused. And then whenever people were in the room with us, I had to act like everything was fine and normal. I couldn't look worried. Or I could cry or be upset in front of anybody. It was like really, really hard. And she still insisted to keep the secret. I asked her, like, what what do I say if someone says something? And she was like, you just absolutely cannot say anything. So at one point, somebody who's a higher up in, in the company And we usually have like a lot of communication with him during filming. He pulled me aside one day and asked me. And he said that he and um, RuPaul, who's the host, had noticed that there was something and wanted to know what was going on. And so I just said, I, I said, I'm not allowed to talk about it. If you have any questions, you can ask Jacqueline, but I suggest you wait until after we're done filming to ask her. We had a big day where we had to interview Queens all day long. And I knew that was a lot of talking for her. And so I finally convinced her to only work half a day and then go home and then let someone else do the second half. And by the time the lunch break came, she said, thank God you said that because I barely made it through the morning. So the last day of filming, she had a doctor's appointment two days after that. And then she had another one two days later. So like on a Wednesday and then a Friday. And I asked her to let me take her to the doctor on Wednesday. And she said, no, it was fine. It was an easy appointment. She went. I checked on I checked on her every day. I actually was looking through my text. I was like checking on her every day. I would come and bring her groceries. I would come bring her food. But she was still insistent that she was going to get another round of chemo It was going to get better. She was really holding on to that. She had these two friends who she had kind of told who were in town. And one of these friends who I knew, well, said, I'm worried about her because I call her. I don't always hear back. I think we just need to do an intervention with her is what the friend said. And I said, well, I'm supposed to go see her anyways on Thursday. So let's just both go. Let's just go show up at her house and let's do this. So I bought groceries for her. We show up at Thursday. Before we get there, we're like, she's driving, I'm driving. Jacqueline reaches out to me and says, I can't do this alone and I need your help. And that's the first time she's actually said it like that. So that was scary. So we get there and she can't get up to answer the door. It takes her about 10 minutes to get from her couch to the front door. She opens it for us and then she has to sit on a stool next to the door for about another 10 minutes before she has enough energy to walk back to her couch. We're just like, you need to go to the doctor now. And she refused. She had an appointment the next day. And she said, oh, well, let's just do it then. So I said, okay, that's fine. But I'm not leaving you here alone. I'm going to spend the night and I will take you in the morning. So I ended up spending the night with her. And we sat on the couch watching um, Friends, which she loved. There was some like marathon of Friends. we were watching it. And she just refused to talk. Like, you know, she would watch and like laugh. And I'd say like, Jacqueline, we should, you know what, do you want to talk about what's going on? Or like, no, like she wouldn't even let me finish the sentence. Nope. Nope. And I was like, well, we'd have to get emotional, but like, can we just talk about, no, she just didn't, did she absolutely refused to talk about what if, how serious this is, what else, what, what happens next? Because it meant that, you know, this something bad was happening. I said, you need to call your mother and tell her that we're like, what's going on, that it's getting worse, that we're going to the hospital tomorrow. And the phone call was so weird because she said, you know, things are getting worse. You know, she described it. She said, Misha's here. She's going to spend the night. She's taking me to the doctor tomorrow. I couldn't hear what her mom was saying, but she basically didn't say much. She said, "Okay, bye. I mean, it was like that. It was like it was that fast. It was definitely denial because up until the end, not even the idea of doing anything like a will or like a sign over what happens to my things. Like there was just no that was not happening. After I spent the night there, I go in. And she's like getting ready. Her legs were filled with fluid. They were like, I don't even like they were double the size of her normal legs. I never was not. She was just hiding it. I don't know how long that was going on. Also, actually, a couple days before we stopped filming, her eyes were bright yellow like butterballs. And I texted her because I couldn't say it in the room. Like, Jacqueline, your eyes are like super yellow. She's like, I know, I know. I'm going to tell the doctor. So anyways, I get her into chemo. And it's like a whole crazy mess, but basically, they're like, you need to be in the, you can't, we can't even do chemo. You need to be like admitted. Her first day in, she, like, I thought she was going to die. It was one of those scenes out of a crazy movie where they were like putting a tube down her throat and there were a bunch of people in the room and her numbers were going all on the machines. And like, I'm in the corner and like, I don't know what's going on. It seemed like she might die on that day, honestly. They ended up stabilizing her. They ended up getting her in a room. There were tons of conversations that were just crazy about, whether she was in ICU or this middle thing before ICU. And from the time that we, she went in the hospital, she died a week and a half later. So basically at this point, I was suppo- we were both supposed to be working in post-production. I got permission to tell our boss what was going on because she was not going to be coming in and I was like barely coming in. So basically she's not doing well, but there's this weird thing that happens where the doctors come in and they will tell her one thing. But if I ask them in the hall, they will tell me something different. So with her, they will definitely say like, "Look, your organs are failing, and like this is happening and that's happening, and it's really bad." But on the flip side, this number has improved, and Jacqueline would just cling on to that. And so Jacqueline had it in her mind like, "Oh, good. As soon as I stabilize, I'm going to go into chemo." So when I'd see the doctor in the hallway and say, "So she's going to go into chemo in two weeks," and they'd be like, "She's not going to make it to that." And at one point, there's a there was a nurse in there, Jacqueline's mother, and I'm in there, and Jacqueline says, "Am I dying?" And I was not expecting that question. And I hesitated for a minute. And I basically said, look, it's a possibility. I said, obviously, you have something really serious, you know, but you're also, also, I went kind of in that lead of the doctors, also your other, some of your numbers are improving. I thought she was going to die soon, but not as soon as she ended up dying. So we decided to get a medical power of attorney for me. We got a notary to come to the hospital and filled out the forms, which meant we had to discuss, what do you want me to do? At what point would you want the plug pulled if you get in that situation? And those were really crazy and difficult conversations to have. So anyway, so I, I, you know, ask her all the things like, what are your, you know, what constitutes the point at which whatever, by the way, I did end up having to make that decision. So at one point, a doctor comes in and says, "Um, yeah, there's nothing else that we can do for here. So we're going to send her home tomorrow. And I was like, absolutely not. She absolutely cannot just go home alone on herself. And they really didn't tell me. I kind of think now that they were just sending her home to die, but that's not what they were telling me. So basically after a lot of battling, we were able to get her in a respiratory rehab. So we're like, okay, thank God that's all settled. I did finally convince her to talk to her father. Well, she didn't actually talk to her father. She agreed for her father to know. So mom calls dad in the, in the hospital room. Jacqueline's there. She tries to hand the phone to Jacqueline. Jacqueline refuses to talk, to but he's aware of it. And it's a very short and emotional conversation and they hang up. Her brother was told, but came didn't make it in time while she was still conscious. And I'm with her and she, her breathing goes haywire, her breathing goes haywire and all the bells go off and all the night staff comes in. She's rushed to the ICU. And now there's another doctor who was much better, who did a chest X-ray and just showed that the whole chest is just, it's all solid in the X-ray. Her organs are failing. Basically, this is it. And so they want to know, does she want to be intubated? Because the the alternative was to just die. And she just looks so terrified, you know, and I was terrified for her. And I wanted, this is the point at which I had to really flip into, like, you've got to make the right decisions for Jacqueline to the best of your ability and don't fuck it up, as RuPaul would say. So we have this conversation. She's in the room. They're basically waiting for me to leave the room. To intubate if that's what they're going to do. There, you know, all these doctors around. And I said, Well, then I'll talk to you after. And then she said, Wait a minute, actually, no, you better, whatever you want to say something, you better say it now. And I was like, Oh God. So I did, that was a crazy moment because I didn't want to be like, You're going to die and I'm saying goodbye to you. But I also wanted to say goodbye to her. So I just basically said, You know, like, be strong. I love you. I don't know, like, generic hugged her, like, trying not to make it seem like it was a goodbye, trying not to cry. So we went ahead and did the intubation. And they sent us out of the room and did it. So they had to also put her under in some kind of way. They'd explained it, but like, they basically said, she can probably hear us, but her body is fighting against the tube. So her body has to be completely knocked out. So the doctor came out and said, you know, we needed to start talking about pulling the plug on the tube. And I'm like, oh my God, it hasn't even been 24 hours. And they were like, well, it's not going to get any better. I said, you know, Everyone encouraged me to have these conversations with her about what she wanted. And this situation is a little different than the ones we discussed, but I don't think you all have tried for even more than 24 hours. And they were saying, well, chances are she's not going to survive more than a couple days anyway. And I said, well, if that's the case, then let's let it be that way so that uh, we don't have to feel like we pulled the plug on her. If it goes, I said, let's give it three days. After three days, we can discuss it again and see what we feel. Jacqueline's mom agreed. That was good. And she died like on the third day. That's the one place where I take a gray area with having kept my promise to her. And I did tell a few people at that point because I thought she's not conscious and I don't think she's coming back. And I told the guy who was the head of the company who had asked about it. I, I told him, I told, there was a few people that worked closely with us and they came to say goodbye to her, even though she was you know not able to talk back to them. And so I don't know. I stand by that. By this point, it had pretty been met two weeks. That neither one of us had gone to work. I can't remember. I probably took like a day off. Much like Jacqueline, I felt like I'm going to feel, in some ways, I'm going to feel better working than being home alone thinking about this. And I kind of did, I don't know, like a, a Jedi mind trick with myself where I said, you know, Jacqueline loved this season. When she was at a certain point of sickness, she was, you know, even thinking about how can I work from home to continue. Like she really wanted... To, you know, it was the last season that Jacqueline will be credited on, that we worked together on in the filming of it. And so I want to make it be a good season for both of us. And that's the way I kind of convinced myself that just go to work. Now, the hard thing about work is a lot of my day is spent watching footage. So I'm listening to her voice. I'm hearing her cough in the interviews. Like, it's just a constant reminder. Right when it happened, and I had only told a few people, Jacqueline's brother posted something on social media and then somebody from our group saw that and then they that's how they found out and then they started so I start kind of stopped answering calls for a little while and text um but eventually like word of mouth I told some people and then they all spread like wildfire it was just the strangest most surreal thing to live through that aftermath because really people didn't know They really didn't know at all. They didn't even know she was sick a little bit. And they're all coming to me because I'm the only person available to them who knows what happened. If anything, it was like a dam burst. And all of a sudden, everyone was like, I had no idea. Breaking news. Oh, my God. Everyone's got to chime in. Everyone's got to know. And with good intentions for the most part. But I remember thinking, oh, this is what Jacqueline didn't want. This is why she didn't want people to know. How does it feel for you to have been the secret keeper? I think on some levels, I was the only person that could have done it because, not because she wasn't close with her other friends at all, but because she had to see me every day. She did just so much she could hide from me. We were so close. And I would notice things about her that, you know, I would have noticed she was sick like a lot sooner than other people did. But I think the other thing is, and she did tell me this at some point, is that she knew that. I could deal with it the way that she needed it to be dealt with. I think her controlling who had the narrative and when they had it was super important to her, and I know that she appreciated that I honored that.
1: Finding out about the the passing of Jacqueline was such a shock to me that it didn't distract, it didn't strike me until later when I when when it didn't strike me until much later and I thought to myself, wow, Mish really had to keep that secret. Like she had to keep it. That I can't even, I can't, honestly, I can't even imagine. I think it's harder to keep someone else's secret than it is to keep your own. Uh, certainly, especially
2: when you're in a situation where you're like at work and people are seeing you coming in every single day and, and w- maybe people are concerned or maybe other people might have some curiosities or ask questions. And, you know, I think, maybe uh, other people may have had a clue, you know, you know, maybe they saw, you know, her body changing a little bit and her energy level going down a bit. Um, you know, but I, just the fact that she, I don't know what it's like to have been in Jacqueline's shoes. And granted, we know that it was obviously tough for Meesh, but, you know, I just, I do think of like, what would it have been like to be even in Jacqueline's position and, yeah. and still wanting to, work through and carry this show the workload of this show i remember and it makes me feel bad because i season nine um which was you know a couple years before she passed but season nine um she when i was filming um she we were we were going on like felt like the 20th hour of filming and everybody was on edge and we were um getting ready to go out and do the the runway and everybody was like get, getting dressed in drag and putting on the finishing touches and zipping up their corsets and gluing on their nails and last minute things and we were like trying to rush and hurry up and get this all together and you know um <laughs> somebody said something about like you know gosh this is really a lot of pressure for us and and um Jacqueline was like you know other people on other shows don't have a problem like you know <laughs> or something like that and i turn around i was like walking away from her and then and that which minute, challenge I got this? Like, what is what runaway
1: what were you wearing i want to i want to picture this in my head i hope you was it the club kid were you dressed like a big peppermint it was
2: <laughs> I, it was either club kid there was like half of us were there so it was either club kid or it might have been when i was wearing this giant hoop skirt or the 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 um the rainbow ball, the sort mm-hmm. of pride. We yeah. did like a pride ball we had been do rainbows. And that was like either like final six, seven, five, four, like halfway through the show. Yeah. And um, and I was like, we're trying to get into our stuff. And there was like nobody helping us. And um, and she was like, I don't know why basically like, I don't know why y'all can't get ready, you know. And I was walking, I never forget, I was walking, I was like going to get something and walking away. And she's like, I don't know why I can't get ready. And I just turned around automatically and walked directly towards her. Like I was going to like push her over. And I was like, listen, bitch, everybody else on those other shows doesn't have to get in drag and write a script and make their outfit. And we don't have anybody helping us. You know what I mean? Like, it was like, I got possessed. And she was like, touche. You're right. And that's when we like really like, became friends
1: you know me me and Jacqueline <laughs> used to bond because we had a tradition starting on season eight obviously that's when i met her mm-hmm. after after i'm telling you after every single episode of drag race i would call her up and we would talk about the episode every episode on season eight we did it for eight all stars two nine ten and i believe a, ele- I believe maybe eleven i called her okay. every every i mean as soon as the episode ended I would uh, call her and we would, we would uh, have these uh, conversations about drag race and what we thought about the episode Mm. and what's going to happen. And she never gave me any spoilers, but it was just kind of our, our bonding moment that we, Mm. that we, that we would share every episode. So I miss her very, very much and Mm. much love to her and to her family and to all the people who were affected by her, by her passing. Yeah. And uh, extra
2: loving shout out and thanks to Mish who uh, agreed to come and and talk with us about this. Special thanks to our production team, Charlene Westbrook, Tracy Marquez,
1: Amelia Ritaler, and Corey Nixon. And a big thanks to all of our guests for sharing their secrets with us. Now listen, every episode of Town Hall, a Black Queer podcast will have contributions from our listeners and our viewers. And if you keep an eye out uh, on me and Peppermint social media... Maybe we'll hear from you very soon. This episode is dedicated in loving memory to the late Jacqueline Wilson. Emmy, oh, the Emmy Award yeah, winning
0: late Jacqueline